one of the things I'm grateful for is to have two sons who follow Christ um, and to have a good relationship with my sons and to watch the Lord work in their lives in different areas. They have different uh, fields they work in and uh, to watch the Lord use their gifts. And um, Micah will be speaking later at a men's breakout. Uh, but, but Daniel's going to come and preach the word. Uh, what we're trying to do is touch on different aspects of what it means to pursue Christ-likeness and what that looks like for us. And so Daniel's going to come, and then after he's finished, he's going to lead us in a, a song to kind of wrap that up. I think you'll find encapsulates it really well. So Daniel, come. Thank the Lord for you. Come and minister the word. So it is good to be with you guys again. Um, let's think about this. I feel like oftentimes we preacher speakers, whoever's speaking, we get up and say, hey, it's a privilege to be with you. You know, I always say it's a privilege, but I, I genuinely mean that. It's a privilege. The opportunity we have to study the word of God together is a sweet time. It is a special time. It's not something you get to do every day, um, but you get to have that set-aside time where we can seek the Lord uh, in His Word and grow together. Um, tonight, I want to look on something that I feel like will piggyback off on what Dan was teaching on when it comes to uh, pursuing. Um, now, we kind of want to move into what is it that we pursue? What does that look like? What does that smell like, taste like, feel like? Um, and kind of get a little bit more different aspect to that. Um, and so uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer again and ask for his grace and his spirit to speak to our hearts. Because this is his word. Anything we say may it be God's word, not our thoughts, but what he wants. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word. Father, I'm afraid we take your word far too much for granted. We have it readily available in multiple translations, and it seems like there's one in Walmart, and there's one in every bookstore, and we can get it quickly, and yet we don't read it as often as we should. We do not receive the food of your holy word. And so, Father, I pray right now that each one of us would be challenged to do that tonight and throughout the week to make the Word of God our foundation because it is your Word to us. So Father, I pray that we would embrace that, learn from it, and live it. Lord, this is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. To be skilled is to be the best at what you do. It requires long hours of study, development, and most importantly, consistent practice. One of the consummate pictures of proficient skill is the athlete. The Olympian, as we have here in front of us, is often known for their sacrifice of normal everyday life experiences for the pursuit of prize and glory. The professional athlete gives more time and effort in a relatively relatively short career when compared to our professions than most of us will ever give in a lifetime. Larry Bird, an athlete for sure to predate most of you and reveals my age, 
is one of the greatest examples of skill and precision to ever play the game of basketball. He did not have the natural-born skill of an athlete of the caliber of Michael Jordan. Rather, he was born out of a blue-collar mentality of pure grit and determination and deep love for the game. Long hours of practice and being the first guy in and the last guy out in the gym made him the skilled player he was. His proficiency in knowing each teammate's strength on the court allowed him to skillfully pass the ball exactly where they needed in order to achieve optimum success during the course of the game. His own skilled confidence in shooting the ball was a testament to his hours of long and hard work. He stands as a testament of what it means to be the best at what you do. To take your skill to a level that most will never attain and only ever dream of. But for the believer, being skilled in the art of living, and that is what we're going to look at tonight. Transparency, skilled in the art of living. To be skilled in the art of living requires a different focus of determination and development. We do not live and walk with the same self-determination as the skilled athlete. Rather, we walk with complete dependence upon the divine wisdom that is from above. And in order to live life that is transparent in its reflection of Christ, we must be skilled in the understanding of God's wisdom in order to be skilled in the art of living this life God has blessed us with for his glory. This passage before us in James gives us a convincing and clear understanding of what true wisdom is and a clear and robust contrast of what true wisdom is not. But before we jump into the text, I just simply want to read it. So let's just read it. Let's let it soak in our hearts and our minds. Let's just pause a minute and read James 3, 13 through 18. And let the word of God speak to us directly. James three thirteen through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. From this passage, I want us to see three aspects of wisdom tonight. And that's what we're going to focus on. If we are to be transparent, if we are to be skilled in the art of living, then we need to know what is wisdom. What is before us? How do we gain wisdom? How do we know what wisdom is? And how do we know what wisdom is not? And there are three aspects I want us to see. The mark of true wisdom, the motivation of false wisdom, and the maturity of true wisdom. The first thing is the mark of true wisdom. How do we know what true wisdom is? How do we even know that we possess wisdom? 
Well, we must know its trademarks. We actually should know the real deal before we know the false and the fake. It's, only, it's the only way to truly distinguish the genuine from the counterfeit. So as we look at this mark of true wisdom, I think first of all we have to see in this passage that the challenge that divine wisdom gives us, it's seen in verse 13. The challenge comes from James in a simple but profound question. Who is wise among you? To answer this question, we really need to do a a little historical etymology of the word. Let's look at the background of this word of wisdom and also understanding so that we can understand what we're looking at here. For those of you who don't know, the New Testament was not written in English, okay? So the cat's about out of the bag on that one, okay? It was not written in English. It was written in the original Greek language, the Koine Greek, the, the, the original tongue of that day and what they would have spoken, and the Greeks' understanding behind the word wise or wisdom was, a, was that of speculative knowledge, theory, or philosophy. We often know that some of the greatest philosophers of our, that we know of and study came from the Greeks. However, the Hebrew took the word for wise and they infused it with a deeper meaning of careful application and knowledge in personal living. So it became a little bit more real and not just speculative and what we think might be possible and what we think could be true. They infused it with a deeper meaning of careful application of knowledge in personal living. With the word understanding, then it gives the idea of specialized knowledge. As one commentator put it, such as that of a highly skilled tradesman or professional. So in other words, the one who is skilled in the art, and may I add, of biblical living, has the ability to take the knowledge of scriptures and to skillfully apply them with understanding in his or her life. So what we can do is change the question a little bit that James is asking here. James is basically asking, who among you has the ability to skillfully apply the knowledge of God's word to your life? Who among you has the ability to apply and live what I have just been writing for the last couple of chapters? Because in order to apply and live what James has been teaching, it's going to require wisdom and understanding and all its depth and meaning. It's going to require you to have skill, the discernment of God's Holy Spirit, to apply the word of God to your life, not just speak it or know it so that you can be a hypocritical Christian but to understand it and to live it. But not only do we see the challenge that divine wisdom gives us, we also see the character that divine wisdom produces in us. And it's also found in verse 13. So if we have the skill to apply biblical knowledge that we possess, that's assuming we possess biblical knowledge, and we are growing, then something obviously needs to be different about us. Those who have and are growing in wisdom that God's word afford us should be different than the world around them. And that difference, quite simply, must be noticeable. There cannot be doubt. I'm not saying there should be perfection by no means. But the believer must showcase a life that stands in stark contrast to the life that the, that the world lives around us. Is your life different? Are you skilled in taking God's word and applying it to your life so that the world may see Christ and glorify him? Are you skilled in the art of living? 
Let's read the text here. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There is a strength found in this passage that is unparalleled to what natural human understanding and inclination would give us. It's not just good conduct that reveals the mark of true wisdom, although that is important but the heart attitude and the spirit by which we exhibit this good conduct. We must be skilled to apply God's word and live it, but we must also know the way in which we should do it. And that way is seen in just a simple little word here called meekness. Now, the problem is, is when our world and us, and we hear the word meekness, we often think weakness. But that's not what the scripture is talking about here. It's not weakness. Really what had happened was is the Greeks had taken this and and really looked at it as power under control, strength under control, that humility that guides our life and the ability to interact with others that God has placed in our life. There's a strength and humility that our wisdom and the skill to apply showcases. It's from above, not from anything that we have accomplished It allows us to be firm in our conviction, but also grace in our interaction with others. We see in the end that God's grace is sufficient because true wisdom is not from sinful man, but from all-knowing and wise God above. But as we've looked at this concept of true wisdom and what wisdom is, the mark of wisdom, of true wisdom... James transitions from what wisdom is and looks like to showcasing a massive contrast between divine wisdom from above and earthly wisdom from below. And we will come back later in the passage and look at more what true wisdom looks like. But for now, James has taken a pause here to show us this contrast, this tension that begins to develop in the middle of this passage. And so we see here not only the mark of true wisdom, but we see the motivation of false wisdom. What is its motivation? So we know what true wisdom is. We know that it is to be skilled in the art of living. We know that it is taking God's word with understanding and applying it to our life. But what is false wisdom? To identify what is counter to divine wisdom, we have to see the root of what motivates the individual who is steeped in the wisdom from below. However, I would encourage you as a believer in Christ to evaluate how false wisdom can even creep into your own heart. If we look at the text, we know that James is speaking directly to believers within the church. Which means he has noticed a trend and a pattern that is developing. So the the book of James was actually written to a group of Jewish believers. To the local church. He's not speaking directly to people who do not know Christ. So I think there's great application for us here so pay attention the motivation of false wisdom it is deeply self-motivated it is a selfish wisdom that which is from below it's purely based on the self selfishness is the scourge of our culture and society these days everything and in every way we are surrounded by that which promotes and feeds the self And it's simple to define and identify, but seductive and cunning in how it consumes the one who's motivated by it. I mean, all we have to do is peruse through social media to know how selfish of a culture we are. All we have to do 
is watch sports and know how selfish we are, how self-motivated we are. What we find in verses 14 through 16 is the root problem of every obedience issue James has been dealing with in previous chapters thus far. We struggle with God's purpose and plan with suffering because of self. James speaks of that. We struggle with hearing but not doing the word because of self. He says that. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. We give way to the sin of partiality of showing respect over someone else because of self. We cannot tame the tongue, the, the verses previous to this, because we are consumed with our self. Let this settle in your heart for a moment. When we look at the word, and you'll see this in there, he talks about selfish ambition, but then he says bitter jealousy. When we look at the word bitter jealousy, that's coupled with selfish ambition, in its original Greek meaning, we find a deep meaning. It carries the idea of zealous, passionate feelings that overwhelm and consume us. It literally means to cut or leave a bad taste in one's mouth. You may be saying, well, Daniel, I'm not a bitter person. I'm not jealous at all. I have none of that in my heart. I may be a little selfish, but I'm not not bitter at anyone. I'm not angry at anyone. I don't have any unforgiveness in my heart. I'm not jealous of anyone. I, I really like everyone around me and I'm good with that. Here's the issue to be blunt. We'll just we'll be blunt. Okay, how, about, how about that? Because we're looking at word, God's word. Anytime self is at the center, it's driven by a strong resentment of who God is and what his plan for our life is personally and what his plan is for his glory ultimately. Let me read that again. Anytime self is at the center, it is driven by a strong resentment of who God is, what his plan is for our life personally, and what his plan is for his glory Ultimately, you're driven by saying something other than what God wants when you're motivated by selfishness. Any hint of self is motivated out of bitter jealousy because at the core, what you think is what, and what you want is more important than what God's divine wisdom demands. It's also distinctly And we're talking about false wisdom here, distinctly earthly motivated. At the root of our selfishness is a large void of being controlled by the Spirit of God and a clear and obvious sign that what I want is convenient for me. My friend, fallen Christ has never been and ever will be convenient. This is clear and distinct sign that you have swallowed the lie and the mantra of this earth. If you're living according to your selfish desires, then you're living for what's convenient for you. Not for anyone else, definitely not for God, but what's convenient for you. Convenience is another scourge of the current generation and culture at large. This is the world's mantra. If it's not convenient for me, then I'm not doing it. I'm not committing to it. This mantra affects every aspect of our life, from marriage to the desire to have kids, from commitment to the local church to the subsequent biblical command to love and serve one another. From commitment to hard work that produces to giving our time and other resources to invest in the eternal work of God's kingdom. All of these and so much more, and I'll let the Spirit of God continue to convict, are hindered by earthly wisdom that what's convenient for me is what's best for me. 
My friend, these are not peaceful efforts, as we will see further in this passage. They are rooted solely in bitter jealousy, passionate, driving, selfish ambition. This is false wisdom. What the world presents to you every day is contrary to what is from above. It stands in stark contrast. It's also deeply demonic in its motivation. Now you're going, whoa, I'm not living in the demonic realm. I am a believer. I am a Christian. I think you're going a little bit too far there. Let's look and see what the text has to say. Other than taking this at face value, there's no other meaning than what it says. If we are not consumed with wisdom from above, we are playing fast and loose in the realm of the demonic. The wisdom of this world takes as its source from nowhere else other than the prince of this world. And see, here's the thing that I think we have to kind of recondition in our thinking here when it comes to becoming skilled in the art of living and what God's word says. We often think of the demonic as this supernatural, powerful manifestation of people rather, you know, rolling around on the floor and speaking in demonic voices and all these things. That's not always the demonic. It's much more subtle. Anything that is of this earth in regards to contrary to God's word is demonic. I think James' condemnation is profound in its use, but it's simple in its understanding. I also think we need to realize that James' admonition is to the believing church. We need to pay, pay attention and take heed. So to think he is speaking directly to those other people in the world is a wrong understanding of this passage. We need to embrace the understanding that he is speaking to us as the church. Remember, as we noted earlier, James is speaking to the church, and furthermore, he's speaking to the Jewish people. So let's reread the first part of verse 14 again. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this warning is to us. It is you. We are the ones being warned here. My friends, I think it's time that we admit the world influences our way of thinking way more than we care to admit. The wisdom that is both from below and takes as its source the prince of darkness infiltrates with its cunning deception our way of thinking more than we care to admit. And there's only one course of action to fight against this. Seek the source of wisdom which is from above. Do not be boast and be false to the truth, as James says, but be skilled in applying the truth from above. Get into God's word, know his truth, and be skilled in applying it. Not for our glory, but for his. In meekness, be skilled in applying this word that we have. It's also disorderly and destructive in its motivation. Verse 16. The world gives us plenty of evidence and examples of the outcome when people give themselves to the wisdom of this world. But the disorderly and destructive nature of false wisdom, as we've already noted, is not far from home. 
Before verse 13 to 18, James spends most of the chapter speaking of the destructive nature of the tongue, and before that, the sin of partiality. So disorder and destruction reign where pride and selfishness is supreme. It could be as simple as your own family. It can be as simple as your church that you're in. It doesn't matter. It can show anywhere. As we transition to the last two verses of this short but full section of Scripture, we see James expound upon his contrast to the motivation of false wisdom. He bookends everything he's been talking about with a more in-depth look at what true biblical wisdom should produce in us. So he asked, who is wise among you? Then he gives what wisdom from below looks like, and then he comes and he lands the plane, he begins to talk about more of what it should look like in our midst, in our own lives. And so we see the maturity that true wisdom will bring. If we seek God's word What maturity should flow from our lives? Maturity of people who are in Christ. The maturity is is seen, or not seen, in the natural responses to the things we face in life every day. We must pray and seek God's word daily if we are to seek this spiritual maturity in our lives. Did not James say in the first chapter, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we're to ask God for wisdom as we are in his word. Did not James say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. I mean, what we have before us in this wisdom that is from above is really the fruits of God's spirit that we see in Galatians 5. Living out the fruit of God himself in us through his spirit. And so he goes through kind of a a litany of lists here. And the first thing he brings up is that of being pure. And this is not a purity that is sexually pure necessarily, but one who possesses the position in Christ. And let's, ex- let's explain what that means for a moment here. The word that is found in this passage carries all the weight of salvation in its original meaning. The original Greek word was used by the Greeks that of a pagan cleansing ceremony that would free the worshiper of contamination and defilement to approach their God to worship. We know that our cleansing is that of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. If we are to approach God and to worship him, to be skilled in the art of living and to live in a way that glorifies him and brings worth to him and worships him, then we must have our position in Christ. God's word tells us in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I would not pretend, and I know my dad said something about this in his passage, and his preaching, but I want to bring this out again. I would not pretend to think that every single soul in this room knows Christ in the same way. To know the maturity of true and divine wisdom, you must first know the cleansing work of Christ that washes you from all contamination and defilement. The end of true wisdom is to live a life of true worship that glorifies God of the universe. 
There must be purity of heart that can only be found in the righteous, justifying work of Christ alone. Again, God's word tells us in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart. And can I just say this? If you're here and you don't know Christ, please don't let a group of gathered believers put fear in your heart for admitting that you need Christ's atoning work. We're cool with that. That admission, because dear brothers and sisters, this is a safe place to confess that you need Jesus. So we have our position. But then for those of us who do know Christ, that purity is more of a pursuing. But to believers in this room, whom this passage is speaking directly to, King David tells us in Psalm 51, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is the man who was a man after God's own heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me, pursuing purity. But it's not only pure The wisdom from above, it's peaceable. Are you a peace-loving person? We have to ask ourselves this probing question. Does our selfish ambition that we've already seen and lack of wisdom from God's word produce in our hearts or what does it produce in our hearts around us? Does it produce peace? And the answer is no. If you are motivated by selfish ambition... By the wisdom that is from below, that which the earth pursues and seeks, it does not produce peace and it will not produce peace in you at all. Selfishness never produces the joyous, spirit-wrought fruit of peace. You will never be settled and neither will anyone you come in contact will be as well. I'm not going to lie, this convicts me. Why do we have quarrels among ourselves? Because we're selfish. If we want to pursue peace with all men, and most importantly, with our God, we must have a position in Him, but we must pursue it, not out of selfish ambition, but meekness, and being skilled in the art of living God's Word. That's where peace will be found. Having talked with my brother Matt Watson about what he's going to preach early in this week, I am not going to steal his thunder because he's going to speak on unity. But I'm just going to say this. Let me ask you this. Are you pursuing peace among the body of believers God has placed in you, you in? Are you pursuing peace with your coworkers, the classmates, or the family that God has placed you in? Those people you find hard to get along with, pursue peace. If wisdom is to produce worshipers, then surely those who produce peace will be a sweet and smelling savor to our God. Psalm 133.1 Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. As one commentator put it, the truly wise don't perpetuate conflict by the selfishness, but produce peace 
by their humility. Do you pursue peace? And James gives us so many more practical applications as he lands this plane. The rest of these I'm just going to kind of present to you in a form of question is a, a evaluating your own heart and where you are at. One, are you patient? I would say probably most of us could use a little help on that. It means are you considerate? Are you gentle? Are you a gentle person? Do you put others before yourself? Personally for me, my son is testing me on that. He's two and a half years old and he thinks he can do whatever he wants. And I tell him he can, he does it anyway. And it's very hard not to be frustrated and to be patient with him and to know that he does not know Christ. Are you impartial? Meaning submissive, open to reason, transparent, sincere in who you are. Are you a person who is willing to submit your life in service to those around you, especially within your local body? To live in sincerity to others and to God? Do you have pity? Are you full of mercy? Has not God shown you mercy? My friends, if we cannot forgive and show others mercy, how can we expect to know mercy and forgiveness from God? Do you show and apply mercy to those around you as God has shown you mercy? Are you producing? As it says and James says, are you full of good fruits? Is your life one that is consistently and progressively producing fruit that is life-changing not only to you, but to those around you. When we read these and present them to ourselves in the form of challenging questions, I think each one of us has to be honest and say that we lack each of these fruits in our lives. Because we're not perfect, but we're pursuing is what we're seeking to be skilled in the art of living for God's glory, to give worship to him. The ability to skillfully apply the wisdom from above will produce the fruits of God's spirit within us. If you want to know if you're spirit-led, I had a, a very wise man say this to me. We were sitting around, we were talking, and, we, and everyone was kind of asking, what does it mean to be Led by the Spirit. People are talking about what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, first of all, the Spirit is within you as a believer. But second of all, he made this very wise assessment. He said, to be filled with the Spirit, to know that you're being led of the Spirit, is to be living the things of the Spirit. You look at Galatians. Galatians, are those fruits evident in your life in any way? Then you are being led by the Spirit. Ask yourselves that. Are these fruits evident? It will also will be evident in our interac- interactions with others. Living and dealing with people is inevitable. I'm not going to get out of this. It's going to happen. In fact, it's directly mandated when it comes to the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel disciple and baptize them in the name of the Father 
And Simon the Holy Ghost, that is our commission. Not only are we to be growing and progressing in the harvest of righteousness, as James puts it, in our own hearts, but with those we fellowship with. As one commentator put it, he says this, he says, Godly wisdom produces a continuing cycle of righteousness, which is planted and harvested in a peaceful, harmonious relationship between God and his faithful people and between those people themselves. Let's read verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to produce? Sow in peace. And then what does he say in chapter 4? He starts saying, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That selfish ambition, that jealous bittersy that he was talking about? Let's come back to that basketball legend that we talked about, Larry Bird. He was skilled in every aspect of the game of basketball. His investment of long hours produced a skill in him that set him apart from his competitors. But here's the interesting thing about Larry Bird. Larry Bird not only achieved many personal stats and awards, he made everyone else around him successful. He was the ultimate team player and motivator. His investment and subsequent skill helped produce one of the greatest Olympic basketball teams to ever be assembled on the hardwood and arguably one of the best teams to ever be assembled in competitive sports. His team added to the illustrious championship history of the Celtics by winning three NBA titles. He made everybody successful. Remember when I said he would pass the ball exactly where his players needed so they could achieve optimum success. His focus and determination to make others around him successful, his deep desire to win allowed his team to be known as a team where no lead was safe by an opposing team. But in the end, if this can be done for a corruptible crown, then what keeps those of us who live for the king of kings from pursuing wisdom that enables us to be skilled in the art of living for the glory of our great king, Jesus Christ? Are you transparent because you are in Christ? And because of that, are you able and are you skilled in the art of living for the glory of God and Him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time that we have together to look at Your Word. And I think each one of us, when we look at this passage, we are convicted and reminded that there's so much that we need to learn from You. Sometimes we choose to forget, conveniently forget, and sometimes we just need to to grow in our understanding of your truth and how to apply it to our lives, to be different from the world, to be in contrast so that others may see Jesus in us. Lord, I pray that we would be, by your spirit within us, skilled within the art of living. When we read God's word, we would not be, as James said, looking in a mirror and then turning away 
and forgetting what, he looked, what we looked like. But that we would be not just hearers of the word, we would be doers of the word. Help us, oh God, to be that. But God, we cannot do this apart from your grace. Nothing within us allows us to be skilled in the art of living only by your grace and your grace alone. We pray this and ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.